Awesome. Thank you, uh, Gina, for the amazing testimony, for sharing God's Word in this way. Um, <clears throat> while working in the paramedic, uh, wor- working as a paramedic in the ER, I wanted to espouse a sort of glamorous servant-type heart. Uh, medical care was a priority for our patients, but I always followed up with something like, can I get you something to eat or a drink or like a warm blanket? Because going to the ER sometimes is like going to the North Pole, and when their appreciation would be sh- expressed, it would make me feel warm inside, so they would feel warm, I would feel warm. And I would think, dang, I'm a good servant. But one time, uh, on one occasion, a homeless drug addict didn't express the typical appreciation that others did. Uh, when I got him water, he flung the cup at me and demanded more. And so as I got more water for him, I thought in my head, like, how dare he? Can't he see that I'm busy, like, trying to save lives, and that I'm going, like, a step further than I need to to get him water? That hot anger that I felt in that moment just expressed the true state of my heart. Like myself, we all want to be leaders, servant leaders. We want to be servants in the church. And our politicians say, like, we will be a servant to you. We all want to be servants until we're actually treated like one. And then that changes the story. And Jonah's like this. Jonah was just like me. He misunderstood his role as a servant and missionary, and his anger was directed towards God. So in continuation with our paintings, Rembrandt um, also painted an unfinished depiction of Jonah sulking after Nineveh repented, and he's terribly angry at God. Have you ever been angry with God? And maybe not just angry, but disappointed, or on the other extreme, terribly livid, sending an incessant barrage of whys and arguments towards God, maybe even cursing him for what's going on in your life. Well, you're not alone. You and I, we can join Jonah in his company. We're at the end of the book of Jonah. In Jonah 1, Jonah ran from God's assignment to preach a message of impending judgment to the most brutal and hated enemy of Jonah and Israel, which is Nineveh. Jonah's running away demonstrated a downward spiral. Away from God meant away from life. And in Jonah 2, we saw that yet God still pursued Jonah with a storm and allowed him to be swallowed by a fish for his salvation. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah offers actually a very incomplete and lacking and selfish prayer to God that's devoid of repentance. Last week in chapter 3, we saw that the total repentance of the city of Nineveh turned the city upside down. And Jonah's life is turned upside down too because he misunderstands God's sense of justice and mercy. And this highlights God's compassion that he showed to Nineveh is a compassion that we're supposed to call, show to those around us. So, uh, four summative sentences that kind of describe the four chapters. Um, number one, with Jonah 1, we see that he is a prodigal prophet. He's on the run. Jonah 2 represents a praying prophet. Jonah 3 shows the preaching prophet. Jonah is a preaching prophet. And Jonah 4, we're going to see he's a pouting prophet. Or as Pastor D.L. put it, Chapter 1 is, I won't go. Chapter 2 is, okay, I'll go. Chapter 3 is, okay, I'm here. And chapter 4 is, I shouldn't have come. So Jonah's rebellion led not to obedience, but to compliance. And Nineveh's impending destruction led to immediate salvation. So it seems like a mission success, and the story's over. But that's not quite yet. We come actually to the climax of the story here in chapter 4. Um, we see that Jonah, 
who's like the secondary character, right? God's the main character. Jonah doesn't still quite get it. Jonah still harbors deep racial prejudice and self-righteousness. And so this chapter depicts God's liberal grace for the worst enemies. As I'm reading Jonah, like, I wish I didn't have a lot or nothing in common with Jonah. And I'm sure you wish the same. But as we read this, we see that we are Jonah. And we actually have almost everything in common with this silly and rebellious prophet. Like Jonah, have you ever thought that God operates in a way that's wrong? Do you see that his justice is lacking for our enemies and that his grace is actually too magnificent for the worst of the worst? Does this then translate into a lack of compassion and mercy for those around you, especially to those who are different and even to those who are your enemies? If so, if that rings true to you, then we need to hear the words of Jonah 4 this morning because we struggle with a tendency to disapprove of God's justice for ourselves and then his boundless mercy for the undeserving and for our enemies. And that's what he calls us to show to others. So the title of this message is, When God Loves Your Enemy. We have two thoughts here that we'll see today. One highlights Jonah and like how he is messed up, how his heart is exposed. And the second thought centers around God's compassion that we are called to adopt. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah to Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, um, reading in the ESV. Jonah 4, verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pay the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Two thoughts. And the first thought we see is that God uses our anger to expose our hearts. God uses our anger to expose our hearts. What's interesting is that Jonah prays two prayers. The first prayer in chapter 4 comes when he's in the city of Nineveh. And he's complaining to God that God rescued the city when all the Ninevites can hear him. So it's not a good witness. But the anger that he has surfaces and it reveals the state of his heart. It reveals that he's racist, that he's selfish, 
that he's self-righteous, and that he's arrogant. So Jonah's anger is described as a burning anger. What made Jonah so angry? We finally see the reason for why Jonah fled from God in chapter 1. Jonah was angry at God for salvation for his worst enemies. And that reflected that Jonah's real problem was with love. You see, Jonah didn't want love. Jonah wanted favoritism for himself and his people. And Jonah had very little regard for whom God loved and who God was in this way. So as a disclaimer, anger is not wrong. And the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. There's room so, for us to be angry. So if you love something that is threatened or harmed, then anger is the appropriate response. But Jonah's anger was a self-righteous anger. It's a sign that Jonah was actually committed to something higher than God. So we first see that Jonah is actually pretty racist. He's inordinately committed to his own race and nation. C.S. Lewis says that love of country becomes a demon when love of country becomes a god. And if rightful and good love for our country, which is good, causes us to exploit people or to root for an entire class or other nation to be spiritually lost, then we have lost our love and interest in God. And that becomes idolatry. So in contrast, God throughout Scripture displays an anger, but it's one that's self-righteous. And in Micah 7, chapter 7, verse 18, it says, You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. That's the mercy of God. There's a confluence of both justice and also mercy in his anger. So we see an interesting play on, on words here in Jonah chapter 4 that reveals more insight of to Jonah's anger. Um, many words have a basic meaning, but they can have multiple meanings too. So one of our seniors, uh, Stephen Cho, was tasked in school to read a story and then reflecting on it was asked to draw a conclusion. And so Stephen, not quite understanding, actually like literally drew a conclusion. Like he drew people and he added his own ending to it. Jonah is similar to Stephen in many ways, but in this way, Jonah is similar because he doesn't get the double meaning of these words. And he goes completely off course by drawing his own conclusion, just like Stephen did. So first, the message, the first word that we see that's kind of a double meaning, um, God gives Jonah a, a message to Nineveh. And it's a very simple eight-line, eight-word message in English, five words in Hebrew. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, overturned in Hebrew is a double entendre. And so it means, it can mean destruction and annihilation. We see it from Genesis 19.21. Or it can also mean transformed and turned. And we see it in Jeremiah 31, 13. So what do you think Jonah meant when he preached that message? 40 days and then it will be overturned. Did he mean annihilation or transformation? What do you think God wanted Jonah to say? See, Jonah was preaching, hoping that Nineveh will be annihilated. But God meant for them to be transformed. And the second play, special play on words is another word for destruction, calamity, is the same word for evil. It's ra'ah in Hebrew. A similar sounding word in there is for anger, which is ra. And so what happens is throughout the book, we see that Nineveh has their ra'ah, their evil. And God is about to send his ra'ah, which is not evil, but destruction. So there's two things that are in tension here. And then when Nineveh repents in chapter 3, Nineveh relents of their ra'ah. They release their ra'ah, their evil. 
And in return, in chapter 3, verse 10, God relents of his ra'ah, the impending destruction. But what's ironic, and this book is full of ironies, is that Jonah here is left with his ra'ah, his anger. And so negative things are let go by Nineveh and by God, but Jonah is left sulking in his arrogance and anger. So for Jonah, it's a disaster that Nineveh averted disaster with God. Jonah prays. So we, the next thing we see is that Jonah is also arrogant. In verses 2 to 3, he declares God to be merciful and demonstrates knowledge of God. But knowledge of God is not translated to a transformation in Jonah's heart. He says gracious and merciful, which is a common phrase used from Israel to describe God. He says slow to anger. And in Hebrew, this literally means it takes a long time for the nose to get hot, which dem- it's a metaphor for anger. He also says God's abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is only characteristic of God. But what Jonah is doing is Jonah is using Scripture against God. He's saying, God, you are this, but I don't want you to be true to yourself. I don't want you to be sovereign. I don't want you to be merciful. I don't want you to be a gracious God. So grace, as we saw last week, is the unmerited favor that no one deserves. And Jonah is actually trying to dictate whom God gives that to. Jonah is saying, I can receive mercy and grace, and my people can, but not the Ninevites. So he confesses this doctrine of grace, but he wants us to say it within the boundaries that he sets, his own parameters. And through Jonah, we see that it's not enough for us to confess grace. We have to embrace it with our lives. Jonah shows that it's possible for us to select Scripture to justify what we want for ourselves. And that's a danger that we all face. If we're reading the Bible and we feel more self-righteous and more smug and more perfect that we don't make any mistakes, then we're reading it incorrectly. But if when we read the Bible, we're humbled and critiqued about our way of living, then we're reading it in the proper way. If we have the knowledge of God, but we don't share it with others, then are we any different from Jonah? So we notice what Jonah does after, right? After he prays this prayer, God asks him, do you do well to be angry? Two things we notice after this. He doesn't reply to God. Like he leaves God on red, and he just walks off, and he goes outside the city. And so it says in this very interesting detail, he says, Jonah goes east, Ten times out of ten, you read in Scripture where it says someone's going east. It always means that they are going towards away from God. We see this in Genesis when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're um, expelled east. Cain, after he kills his brother, moves east. The people of Babel, after they're going to make Babel, they go east. Lot, when he chooses a land that's wrong, he goes east. This happens many, many times in Scripture. And what God does, as he moves east, he goes outside the city to see he wants a good view of God to rain down fire and brimstone upon the city. But instead, God rains down his goodness and mercy. And it's shocking to Jonah. God tries three times to help Jonah to understand God's mercy in a new way. So he, as Jonah is sitting there in the hot sun in the Middle East, God miraculously grows his plant overnight. And it provides shade. And for the first time we see in this narrative that Jonah becomes happy for once, but then despairs once God takes a plant from him with the worm. Then God sends a blistering east wind, 
And so another thing that we see throughout Scripture is anytime you see an east wind in the Bible, it's always a symbol of God's judgment and his wrath coming. So God's using it to get his attention. Jonah is like really, really hot. He's baking in the sun. And the heat that's there, the Hebrew expression of his anger was that it says that it was hot to him. So he's hot both literally and metaphorically. God provides a plant for shade to deliver him from his anger, but he's using the heat to expose that the external heat that he's feeling is actually showing that there's something wrong inside of him. There's an internal heat that he needs to get rid of. And it shows that Jonah has comfort as an idol. So Jonah is selfish. That's another thing we see with Jonah, that he has this plant as his biggest comfort. He upholds and values this more than he upholds and values the lives of others. And that brings us to terms with Jonah in this way. Like, what is your plant? What are the ways in which you elevate your comforts, your security, your safety net, the ways that you can relax and feel at ease above the needs of other people who are perishing spiritually? Maybe momentary comfort grips us. I'm like Jonah in that way. I'm more happy with comfort and sad when the comfort is taken away from me. But what God is doing is he's exposing that Jonah has a conflict of kingdoms. And he continues his assault on Jonah's self-righteousness. So then Jonah says, I would rather die than live. He says that twice. And it shows that his real problem was not really a theological one, but it's a heart issue. In his desire to die, he has replaced God as a main joy in his life, the main reason, the main love. He valued something more. When you and I say, I won't serve you, God, unless you give me X, then X is the baseline for us. X is the true highest form. X becomes our God. And so to Jonah, he didn't trust in God in this way. For him, it was better to die than for his enemies to live. The world he knew, the thing that he thought was true, is falling apart. As he's, what he knows about God, is unraveling as he's talking with God. So we see that Jonah is very self-righteous. That's the last thing we see through his anger. It's like in his claustrophobic kingdom of one, it's like when you go to an elevator and someone's in there and you're like, wait, hold the door, and they're like, no, 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 there's no space for you. That's what Jonah's doing. He's saying there's no more space in this little elevator for Nineveh or for anyone else. We are like that in that way. We're self-righteous. We find something more important to God in our hearts, and that makes us selfish. It will create pride and an inclination for us to look down on others, creating fear and breeding insecurities in ourselves. If whatever it is that trumps God becomes a basis for our happiness, if anything threatens it, we will fall into deep despair. And so to reach Jonah's heart bedrock, God really assaults and launches an assault on Jonah's idol. An idol, as Pastor Paul David Tripp defined before, is that is when we make a good thing become a bad thing, when that good thing becomes a ruling thing. So Jonah has good things in his life that he, he kind of distorts into bad things. God does the same for us. When we hit bedrock, when we go to the very, very deepest core of ourselves, where we're confronted with our idols, We become drained of our self-righteousness when God's grace comes in and delivers us. God patiently points out our sins 
not so that he delights in us being angry, but because he's kind and full of grace. He puts us in difficult situations so that we might see and have his heart. There's a pastor in Scotland. His name is Pastor Mez McConnell. He wrote about his abusive stepmom as he identified with Jonah's same anger. So this true illustration that I'm going to read for us, it's pretty heavy. And being sensitive to those of us here online or in this room who've gone through abuse, I've attenuated and omitted some details um, that depict a really gruesome abuse that he suffered. But when his stepmom died, the obituary was written by a sibling, and it read, Marianne Teresa Johnson Reddick died alone on September 30th, 2013. She is survived by her six of eight children whom she spent her lifetime torturing in every way possible. While she neglected and abused her small children, she refused to allow anyone to care or show compassion towards them. Everyone she met was tortured by her cruelty and exposure to violence, criminal activity, vulgarity, and hatred. On behalf of her children, we celebrate her passing from the earth, and we hope she lives in the afterlife, reliving every gesture of violence, cruelty, and shame that she delivered on her children. Her surviving children will now live the rest of their lives with the peace of knowing their nightmare finally has some sort of closure. So Pastor McConnell writes this. I just heard several hours ago that my stepmother is dead. Of what and how, I do not know. I would like to go to her funeral and stand up and let everybody know that this person, who this person truly was and how much damage she did while she was alive. But I'm a pastor. I should know better. I know that the one who has been forgiven much ought to forgive much. I know. I thought I might dance a little and even feel a sense of elation at news I dreamed about and ached for as a kid. This is a woman who drove me to such despair that I attempted to set her on fire when I was no more than 10 years old. But there is no dance. There is just a heaviness of heart and the nagging itch of my suffering and her evil never admitted in this life. The problem is that I want to feel joy at her passing. I want to rejoice in the belief that she will face the judge of all the earth for her crimes against me. But I don't feel joy that I want to. I just feel sad for a woman who wasted her life in bitter anger and expressed it through the mental and physical torture of children. I'm conflicted further when I think about my own family today, almost three decades after she beat me for the last time. My wife of 17 years lies next to me, soundly sleeping. My girls, 12 and 13, are in their rooms. Because of my childhood, they have never known violence in our home. Because of my pain, they have never known physical abuse. Because of my nightmares, they don't know forced isolation. Because of my scars, they don't know abject humiliation. Because of her, they've never known the horrors of deeply psychological and traumatic abuse. I'm conflicted because I realize that my own family lies peaceably unmolested because of God's goodness in my life and perversely her evil in it too. God has used her evil for the good of my family. The thought that she should get any credit, however, is abhorrent. And then I find her photo. She looks like an old woman even though she was not. A lifetime of self-abuse has ravaged her features. And I realized then that that could have been me. That was my own road to self-destruction until Jesus intervened. I live today only because Jesus found me. He gave me hope and he gave me a spiritual family. Yet still I feel conflicted. I feel like my toing and froing over forgiveness and the rationalization of my suffering is somehow betraying my childhood self. It's 4 a.m. and an awful thought crosses my mind. 
maybe she did change at the end. What if, like me, she found true forgiveness and peace of Jesus Christ? There's no way. There was no evidence to suggest it. But how would I know? I haven't seen her in 30 years. God wouldn't do that to me, right? He wouldn't. He's on my side. He wouldn't let me down by saving my chief tormentor, would he? That would be the ultimate cheat. Pardoned at the death for her heinous crimes against me and others. I don't like that thought. I want God to overlook my sins. I like it when he does that. But hers, that's a stretch. I'm a better person than she was. But is that statement true? I have hurt people. I abused people. I stole. I lied. I murdered in my heart. I too have done awful things. Will he let her off easy? Will he forgive her? Maybe, maybe God doesn't know the full story, and I need to fill him on the details. The child abusers. He died for awful human beings like my stepmother. But he also died for awful human beings like me. She doesn't need my forgiveness any more than I need her repentance. We both need the former from him, and he requires the latter from us. Thankfully, in Jesus, he grants both to all who come. Unlike Jonah, Pastor McConnell could see the depths of grace because he experienced it for himself. And that ushered in this painful conflict that he had to bear, the tension that we also have of being angry over our past. And for McConnell was forgiving his stepmom. And maybe like McConnell, you too have suffered deep scars of physical or emotional or mental or sexual or spiritual abuse. Maybe your shame and unwanted behaviors or addictions now are results of a lifetime of abuse or one incident, one night, one day. I don't know your story fully, and I don't know your scars, but I do know a Father who redeems all stories and who heals all scars. That's not to dismiss the weight of anything unspeakable that's happened to you in abuse. But in McConnell's amazing, counterintuitive, contra-human grace he wrestled with, that's freedom for you and for me, found in the depths of Jesus' scars for us. You see, Jesus was deeply familiar with abuse. He was deeply familiar with pain, with suffering, with being oppressed. And yet, he was able to extend grace to his enemies. So, Do you deserve God's grace? The self-righteousness in us surfaces when our deepest desire for the others, whoever they may be, is for them to experience God's justice and not an ounce of God's mercy and compassion. None of us deserve mercy, but we are all recipients of it. Therefore, the question stands, are you willing to extend God's grace? Are you willing to have God's grace extend to others, to enemies? And to take it one step further, and this is a kicker, Are you willing to have God's grace extend to your enemies through you? What if transformation comes to your abuser, to your oppressor, and to your enemy through you? And there's certainly wisdom in us loving an abuser immediately or in any case, but what if the Ninevehs God's calling you to are the ones who have hurt you the most? Well, you see, when God could have picked 
someone in Assyria, someone in Nineveh to bring the message of truth to the city. But he didn't. He used an enemy of the state in Jonah to bring a message of transformation. Are we willing to be a channel of God's grace to the parent or the sibling or the child or the in-law with whom we have had conflict with for years? What if the love of Christ through you transforms that boss or manager who has taken advantage of you? What if God's kindness through you heals the racist who hurls insults or slanders you? Now, Jonah is an easy target. You don't have to be a good shot to hit him dead center. But we're like Jonah, and so if we're like Jonah, we're not really that hard to hit either. Can we say that we are free of the selfishness and self-righteousness that Jonah has? The call of God to Jonah as he's calling Jonah to turn from his anger and turn towards God, is a call to us. God sends a fish, a storm, a plant. Why? Because he's too holy and loving to allow Jonah to fall to judgment, to remain as he is. And so God is too holy and loving to allow us to remain as we are. He moves us and calls us to be transformed, and that comes through our compassion to others. It's because of grace that we can have that change, that transformation in our lives. So God uses our anger to expose our hearts for good or for bad. Here go to the next slide. Um, next thought that we have is God's grace and forgiveness to enemies exposes his heart. God's grace and forgiveness to enemies exposes his heart. We see things about God through his pursuit of Jonah. We see that God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, abounding in love, unrelenting, unconditional love. He relents from sending judgment. God as creator has compassion in all that he has made, no matter how ignorant, how abusive, how vile or violent the culture is. And so we see a contrast between Jonah's heart and God's heart. Jonah desires to see the city burn. God desires to see the city spared in chapter 4, verse 11. So the question, the most confounding and profound question that's in the book of Jonah is how could a God who is perfectly good and holy love and care for an evil city? That's the, the question that Jonah is wrestling with throughout this whole book. There's something called the love of attachment. And what that means is you love someone because you are bound to them in affection. So for Jonah, the only thing that we see for his love of attachment is to the plant. Like it's, he loves it and it dies and then he's sad. But for God, he weeps over the evil and the waywardness of Nineveh. Love of attachment always means that it opens a door to suffering with. Because we suffer on account of the object or person that we love. We all need many things. And we get emotionally to attached to those things that we need. But God, in his perfect transcendence above all and his perfect unity with the Father, Son, and Spirit does not need anything. He's utterly perfect and happy and content in himself. So if he doesn't need us, then how can he be attached to Nineveh? How can he be attached to Jonah? And the reason why is because the infinite, omnipotent God, who's self-sufficient, attaches himself voluntarily. In the final verse, in verse 11, it says, God points out that these people don't know the right from the left. And that's like a spiritual morality that they don't know. They're ignorant. They're responsible, but they don't know good from, from wrong. And so God shows remarkable sympathy that while he holds them accountable, he also understands that they're ignorant. There are many people like that. 
that we look to and we look down upon them. When someone acts foolishly or out of line and the consequences fall upon them, we say they got what they deserved. We might gloat over them. And this is a way of us detaching from them. We distance ourselves from them so in our pride and because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. But God doesn't do that. See, real compassion is the attachment to the heart of others. It means sadness in their condition. And this is the character of compassion that he has with Nineveh and with Jonah. If we love someone, we will be angry when something threatens or harms them. But if God, being God, must punish evil, then how can he also be merciful? How can a holy and righteous God forgive those who deserve divine judgment? How can God be perfectly holy and yet completely love Nineveh at the same time? God had to punish the evil that's in Nineveh. Why? Because he would not be perfectly good if he overlooked evil. But he desires for them not to be lost. And that's because his goodness is so perfect. He, in the, he's too good in the sense of loving. He would not be perfectly good if he let everyone perish. So his righteousness, his justice, and his love are both functions of his goodness. He would not be infinitely good unless he was infinitely just. And that culminates in the picture of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, on his death on the cross, we see the beautiful intersection of God's justice and his compassion. Because all sin must be punished, and that's the justice. But in the compassion of God, God takes that, that punishment for us so that we don't have to go through the consequences of our own wrongdoings and sin. We've seen the concept of grace, and this is what grace is. When God takes our punishment and he fulfills it himself, grace is unmerited favor. It's like when God welcomes you into his home, knowing all your mistakes and how messy you will make his home. He welcomes you in to sit on his couch doesn't just tolerate you, but he wants you to stay forever. That's what grace is. When you do and I don't deserve it. Grace is not ignorance. It's not tolerance, where we allow someone to continue in their sin. You see, grace without truth is compromise. And truth without grace is condemnation. So grace is not blind. It sees a sin, yet it covers it. It sees the wrongdoing, and it forgives it. And God allows calls us, when we receive that grace, he calls us to share that to other people. Pastor Brian Lord says that when we receive grace, we are called not to be cul-de-sacs of grace, but to be boulevards, to channel it to other people, and especially that goes to our enemies. When we think of the word enemy, we think of people that we demonize on the other side. And news and social media teaches us how to do that really well. We're sucked into a maelstrom of abhorring others. So the question is today that God is asking us is who is your Ninevite? Who is your enemy? It can be a group or individual who has harmed you or harmed someone that you care about. And the problem is that when someone harms us or, or wrongs us, we reduce them in their complexity to something that they've done. So for example, if someone lied to you, they didn't just lie to you, they're now a liar. If someone stole from you, they didn't just steal from you. They're a thief. And so we start to paint ourselves better in that light. But Jonah 4 flips this dog-eat-dog morality world upside down. And here's a confounding and profound question from Jonah 4. What if that enemy, that person, that group that you hate the most in your life is there precisely 
so that you can grow and mature and deepen in your faith. There's a theologian named Walter Wink. He calls this the gift of the enemy. So he, I'll read this paragraph for us. This is, quote, he says, This is a gift that our enemy may be able to bring us to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. They are friends precisely because they're able to overlook or ignore those parts of us. But the enemy is therefore not just our hurdle to be leaped over on the way to God. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts to ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror our enemies hold up to us. So Walter Wink goes on to recommend this exercise for us. Enemies might be a tool for us to understand God better. And he recommends if we take some time this week, maybe after reading Jonah 4, you can journal and think about your greatest enemy, the person you have the most beef with, conflict for so many years, and you write down and bullet point their characteristics that makes them horrible. They're selfish. They lie. They're untrustworthy. They gossip. They're unreliable. They slander. They like to condescend. They're insecure. All these things. And once you've completed that list, he asks you to pray through it and then go line by line from the beginning and ask, do I show and express those same characteristics? And the answer is yes. And so what Walter Wink says is like the way for us to forgive enemies first is to first understand that we share a common brokenness with them. And this is clearly where God's leading Jonah. Don't you see, Jonah? You're able to empathize with rebellious people because you were rebellious. And you're able to empathize with a misguided people because you were so misguided from the beginning. Could it be that the enemy in your life is precisely because God's inviting you to a deeper experience of grace for you and for them? So if you're of a Korean heritage, maybe we struggle with our enemy making it out to be the Japanese for the unspeakable atrocities and imperialism that's done in our country and the generational trauma that we still carry. Maybe if you identify strongly with one political leaning, then the other side of the political aisle is a demon. Maybe your enemy is closer to home. It's in your home. A parent, a child, a sibling, an in-law. But what God does is he completely deconstructs the idea of what an enemy is. The one place in this world that enables us to fully stop seeing an enemy as an enemy, but an enemy as a friend is at the foot of the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, you and I, we find ourselves realizing that we are the enemies of God. We were the enemies of God before Jesus came. And the mark of those who have been immersed by God's grace and love, they demonstrate compassion, not contempt for people who aren't like them. God challenges Jonah for confronting this ungodly people without weeping compassion. He rebukes Jonah for preaching throughout the city Without, love for, without loving the city. If, if our compassion is to resemble God's, we have to abandon this cozy world of self-protection. God's p- compassion doesn't mean that he's perched above feeling bad for us. He stooped down to this world to share this brokenness with us. If you want an accurate picture of your heart, picture your worst enemy and then picture God blessing them a millionfold. How do you respond? Is there room in your gospel, 
and you're a little elevator for the abusers, for parents who are alcoholics and abandoned you, for the siblings that tormented you growing up, for the ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-husband or wife who has scarred you for so many years, for the children who continually disrespect you and dismiss you and dishonor you? Or is grace for only those you approve of? In our lives, there are going to be moments where we don't think God's justice is right to us. And the love of God doesn't seem good to us. And the grace of God doesn't seem well for us. But if we know we are in deep spiritual trouble, when those sins of others concerns us more than the sins of ourselves. There's a pastor whose wife left him. She divorced him and went to another man who she saw, said, and saw was her soulmate. That left the pastor subject to a great deal of controversy in his church and the center of much gossip. And she must have left him, they said, because he failed to be a good husband. Maybe he failed her. Maybe he wasn't a good man to her. How can a pastor be divorced? And these words hurt and angered the pastor deeply. He wanted to squash every whispering lie and every condemnation with shouts of truth. But then the gospel and the grace of God sunk in at the bedrock of his heart. And as he heard the gossip, he realized that no matter how much people said about him, no matter what they said about him, it could never fully capture how sinful he really was. The pastor understood grace. As wrong as gossip is, it could never condemn him enough, nor could the condemnation stand before a merciful God. It reminds me of the trouble I had in forgiving my middle school and high school bully. His name was Michael. And every time I wore something to school, anything I brought to school to eat, anything I did, anything I said in class was met by ridicule. And it was hurtful. There was never any physical violence involved. But every word pierced my heart. And it brought a lot of shame and humiliation to anything I did. So I was second-guessing, thinking of the outfits I would wear to school that day, would it please and not incur any ridicule from Michael? We eventually left part of ways in high school when he moved away, but I was still left with so much bitterness and unforgiveness towards him. And I carried it throughout all four years of high school. When I returned to the States, it really affected me deeply. And I would think of ways that I could beat him up or ways that I could have said like a comeback in that moment when he said something really mean to me. And I eventually told my dad, and my dad said, let's go to a prayer meeting. So we went to this church in Maryland called the Rock Church. It was a prayer meeting, and it was a Wednesday night. And we were praying with a group of pastors and men, and, and one of the pastor's daughters, who's 13 years old, comes up, and she's like, I'm going to lead the prayer meeting. I'm just like, what is going on? And so she comes up to me, and she's like, what do you need prayer for? And I was like, I, <laughs> I need prayer for forgiving this middle school bully. And she was like, she heard me out, and she's 13, you know, I'm like a senior. And she said, what it would be great for you to do right now is for you just to articulate out loud. In the name of Jesus, I forgive you, Michael. I thought that was so silly and dumb. But with everyone there and the pressure, I decided to give it a shot. As I was thinking about him, I said, I just said that just very normally. I said, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you, Michael. And that's when the floods broke. I don't know how to explain it. My heart wasn't in it, 
but God softened my heart in that moment. And the memories that Jesus brought up of every word and every moment that I've suffered, I said, I forgive you, Michael, for the times that you said this, for a time that you made fun of me for this. And I became free that night of my, of my hatred and my anger. And, and the question that God asked Jonah in Jonah 4 is, do you do well to be angry? And that's the question that he asked me that night. Did you do well, Josiah, to be angry all these years towards Michael? What good did that anger do for you? Yeah, you might have felt strong in that moment of not letting go of the, the forgiveness because he didn't deserve it. And forgiving him would feel weak because you're submitting to him in that way. But what good did that do, holding on to that anger and hatred? And that question is posed to you today. If there's someone here, an enemy, that you have had so much conflict, maybe you've gone years without talking with them, what good has your anger done for you? What good has your hatred and bitterness done for you? Because as I've learned through the conflict through the years, that every petty fight, every argument, it's not worth it. Forgiveness is when every argument and justification and comeback in your head unravels because you understand the tender compassion of loving them in the way that God has loved you. So what? What does this mean for you? In the book of Jonah, with 48 verses, there's the word great that's used 13 times. It's a lot. Great storm, great wind, great fish, great ship. There's a great city of Nineveh. There's a great evil that the Ninevites do. What's all this? This is to highlight the great mercy of God. Everything is so big, and it's great because God's mercy is greater. And that's what God's showing us. When God loves your enemy, he wants you to show that same sort of compassion and mercy as well. But then we protest and we say, maybe God, you don't know the details of how horrible, what the horrible things they've done to me or said to me. Maybe we have to remind God. But the thing that releases us from the grasp of the idols is when we can receive God's grace. To get God's love and Christ's love down to the bedrock of our hearts for transformation to occur. It's a slow and painful process. And God's patient with us in that way. What the gospel says, the gospel says the grace is not achieved, it's received. And in ourselves, we are lost and flawed and undeserving, but in Christ, we're completely accepted and delighted in by the one of the universe that we adore the most when we receive his grace. A received grace identity sweeps away all pride, and it humbles us. How can we condescend and look down upon other people when we're all on the same playing field? There's no need to inflate ourselves by excluding others. And even in our church, if we feel superior to each other in any way, maybe if we're in different life stages, singles, married, having families, do we look down on people of other life stages and exclude them simply because they're not in our life stage? What the gospel shows us and what the book of Jonah shows us is a very interesting ending to the book of Jonah. It leaves us with a cliffhanger. God asks a question to Jonah, and again, Jonah doesn't respond. It's not recorded that he responds. Jonah doesn't respond, and it remains unfinished because we are to provide our own conclusion. We're to be like Stephen in this way. We're drawing our own conclusion. It's as if God shoots an arrow at Jonah, and then Jonah disappears, and the the arrow is aimed towards us. How will you answer? In 3,000 layers removed from this book, 
how do we respond to the questions that God poses to Jonah in this story? Are our hearts like Jonah? Like, are we glad that the grace and compassion that God extends to us is for us, but are we angry when it's extended to other people? What we do see, however, is that there is redemption for Jonah. We believe that Jonah wrote this book. And what Jonah does is he doesn't hold back from looking like a fool. Because after the questions are asked, Jonah returns home. He realizes that he was silly and an idiot. And he was so rebellious against God and sinful. And so he's okay. He understands grace. He's okay with being the fool in the story because it highlights God's grace. He understands God's grace for him. The one place in this world that calls us to stop hating our enemies is at the cross. And it's not only at the cross. You see, the cross happens years after Jonah. But the way actually to look at the cross is actually to look backwards before Jonah occurs. In the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. Abraham is an old man, but God promises him four things. He says, you are to be a blessing to all nations. And this is the primary thing that we're going to draw on here. He promises him children, descendants, when he's barren, lands, and a great name. And years later, in chapter 15, Genesis 15, we see that the promise has no fulfillment in sight. Abraham is getting anxious. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't have a land. His name's not that great. And he doesn't know how to be a blessing to our people, to other nations, because he's been a curse to them so far. But God shows through Abraham that the lineage continues from Abraham to Jonah, that God's desire is for Israel, his chosen covenant people, to be a blessing to all nations. And so God makes a covenant in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Covenants at this time are like promises and oaths, where in, in this particular ritual, two parties would convene. They would take several pairs of animals, cut them in half, and then make two columns with their glopping carcasses. And the parties would then make vows. They would place stipulations upon themselves that they were bound to. And then together, they would walk through the column of animals. And the action is to say, if you or I break our covenant with each other, then what happened to these animals that we walk through, may it happen to you and I. God covenants to Abraham to be faithful to his promises to Abraham if Abraham will obey God's commands. That's the stipulation for Abraham. But Abraham, in Genesis 15, becomes terrified because he knows his track record's really bad, and he knows it's inevitable for him to fulfill God's commands perfectly, and not only him, but his children to come after him. He knows how sinful he is. Therefore, God does the unthinkable. He causes Abraham to fall asleep to a deep sleep. When Abraham sounds asleep, God, in the form of a pillar of fire and cloud, moves through the column alone. And what I want you to not miss is what this action is paramount to saying. God takes the oath alone. He says, I will be damned if you fail on this account. We're making this covenant together, but the consequences, if you fail, will come upon me. And because God's perfect, he's not going to mess up. But he knows Abraham is. And God knows that Abraham can't bear the consequences. He knows that God's, Abraham's future descendants, his covenant people, cannot bear the consequences. So God says, I will do it. If God does not uphold his covenant, he's no longer God. So he promises to uphold the covenant to Abraham, no matter the future, what he will do. 
In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, since the covenant was broken by God's own people, God had to be mutilated. He had to be mutilated and killed. The immortal God had to become mortal. Christ became man. He was stripped of his glories and butchered to fulfill the oath he made in Genesis 15. The promise so that all nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins so that he could bear God's wrath and, the full God, and fulfill God's love for us. And I wonder, reading this passage, did God know the future? Could God actually see into the future and see everything that humanity would do following this covenant? Did God know about humanity's wars, the genocides that would follow in the modern centuries? Did he know about the sex trafficking and the slavery that we would enslave people of other continents? Did he know about our raping, of our sexual assaults, of our racism, of the prejudice that we have, of the ways we would do each other wrong in our murders? I wonder if he hesitated on the precipice, contemplating if this was worth it, because God didn't gain anything from it. And I wonder if God knew, did God know that Nineveh was going to skin people alive, that they would decapitate the heads of the soldiers that they conquered and force the children to carry those heads and pray through the streets and then burn the children alive? Did God know also that Jonah would be rebellious and that he would have to send wind after storm, after worm, after fish to Jonah? And the question falls upon us. Did God know that we would fail him miserably? Did God know the ways that you messed up in your past, the ways that I messed up in my past, And his love speaks. He knew. He knew and he saw. And as he stood on the precipice before going to the column, he rushed through. He rushed through for every single one of you. He committed himself to undergoing the cross for every person who has received his grace. He didn't hesitate. His love made him rush through. There's a song by Delirious where it says, God didn't screw up when he made you. He's a father who loves to parade you. It should have been you and me walking through that gauntlet and crying because we knew we couldn't fulfill the demands of the oath. But Jesus saved us from that, from ourselves. And at the cross we see when Jesus' last breaths, he says in Luke, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. We were enemies of God. We were the enemies who crucified Jesus on the cross. And yet, God demonstrated his greatest compassion for Nineveh, and he demonstrated his greatest compassion for us on the cross. Jonah failed to weep and have compassion for his enemies. But Jesus wept for our sin and our evil and our waywardness. Jesus didn't merely weep for us, but he died for us. When Jonah went outside the city, hoping to see its condemnation and its judgment, Jesus went outside the city to die for us on Calvary. With Jesus' last words, he thought of you and me. The same moment that he thought of us before going through that column. The enemies of God, the ones who crucified him with our sins. And yet, in his sovereign grace, he demonstrated the ultimate compassion in dying for you so you don't have to die and suffer death. There's a last poem I just want to end with by Thomas Carlyle. It says, And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat, and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Father, we pray and thank you, God, for an amazing book like Jonah that's filled with 
just the riches of your grace and kindness and love for us. And in it, we see ourselves as Nineveh, but most importantly, we see ourselves as Jonah. We're so stubborn. We're so self-righteous and selfish. We don't want to share love and compassion to people who are different from us, and especially to our enemies. Yet, God, you showed love and compassion for the most vile people on earth, and you call us to do the same for the people that have wronged and hurt us. No matter what it was, you call us to forgive and show compassion because we were enemies of you at one point. And it didn't matter what we've done to you. It didn't matter how we've hurt one another. You were willing to forgive all. So God, would you help us to receive that grace, to take it to the bedrock of our heart, to transform us, and to show compassion to our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.